and welcome to Chapter and Verse, The Art of Selling Children's Books. I'm Charlotte Eyre and this podcast is brought to you by Rocket and the Bookseller. I hope you will enjoy what our guests have to teach us about getting books into the hands of readers. Today's episode is all about non-fiction and to help us understand that market, our guest is Rashmi Surdish Pandey, author of Dosh and the upcoming Good News, which are both published by Hachette. Later on in the show, I will also be talking to Christopher Ransom, Head of Campaigns Children's from the Quarter Group. But first, here's Rashmi. Rashmi, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Charlotte. Thank you so much for being here. Your non-fiction book, Dosh, has been a real hit. Can you tell me why you wanted to write a children's book about money? Well, I think because money is this huge topic that we all have to deal with, no matter who you are, or where you're from. It's just something we have to get on with when we grow up. And actually... That's so unfair because it's a big thing, it's a tricky thing, and it's a messy thing. So I wanted children to grow up feeling confident about using money, see it as a positive thing, and especially to see it as a force for good in the world, because I think it does get a really bad rep, understandably, because money can do bad things. And I wanted to just shine a spotlight on the good things that it can do. So I thought, well, you know, I can't find a book exactly like that out there. So I'm going to I'm going to write one. And that's how it came about, really. Yeah, I was doing some research for this and I saw a report in the Financial Times that said 69 percent of students worry about money and 82 percent want to receive more financial education at school. Those are really high numbers. What sort of research did you do into financial literacy amongst children here? I did do a little bit of research. I, I saw some studies that said that actually our habits around money kick in as early as sort of age seven and that's exactly where Josh lands it's at that age I know people talk about introducing these conversations later on but if our habits and our feelings around money and those can be quite strong feelings based on what happens in the world around us and in our immediate homes Mm -hmm. if those are setting in so early then we need to be reaching children at that age and I know teachers are keen to do it I know librarians are interested and I've seen with Josh that they now feel that they have something that they can used to start those conversations Um, and that's just so amazing. And how did you structure the book? You mentioned you talked about the good things that money can do and that's at the end of the book but you have some really interesting facts leading up to that so tell me how you organise your information. So we have sort of main chapters that look at everything from how to earn money because that's the (laughs) earn it to have it Um, and that's got a little bit on entrepreneurship as well because that's something I find children find really fascinating. I was curious to see who's out there and what they're doing, how they think about being entrepreneurial no matter what they end up doing. Then we look at saving money. Um, We look at how to spend it. And things like the tricks that advertisers use to sort of trick you into spending more than you mean to or on things that you don't really need. Looking at the difference between needs and wants is all in there as well, because that's foundational. We go into so savings, earning, saving, spending. We talk about how to invest money, how to grow that money and all the different options out there and also how they're risky too. We even look at things like Bitcoin and, you know, just things that they might be hearing in the world. And actually even grown-ups may not feel confident about you know, introducing and, and talking around. And so the book puts all of those, you know, in a sort of fun tone and Adam Hayes' illustrations just make it all sort of lighter and accessible as well. So we go through all of that, all the things you can do with money. And then the final chapter is about giving. It has its own chapter. And that's not just donating money, but also just how the way we spend our money with good companies who are doing good things in the world um, who have ethical supply chains. Obviously, don't say it like that in the book, but, you know, in an accessible way, talk about the the different ways in which you can give through your spending, through your saving. Mm -hmm. And of course, by supporting the good work of, of charities out there. I have to say, you mentioned Bitcoin there. It had the, you gave the best description of mining for Bitcoin that I think I've ever read because that is something that is so complicated and difficult to understand. Were there things that you yourself 
learned during this book that you weren't really confident about beforehand yes and that is definitely one of them and I so I come from a mixed background I used to be a lawyer working in the city and I did an MBA so a lot of my friends are in finance Mm -hmm. so I had chats with them about you know what does this really mean and it really it blew my mind because you know this is a completely different world to me as well I mean in a way it ties together lots of things that I've been doing in the past but I had to do my own research and really study some of these things and actually with nonfiction, you have to study them quite deeply to be able to distill the essence and, and put that together in a book. Mm-hmm. It means a lot of reading around a topic. And I can see behind you on your notice board, you've got the front cover of your next book, which is yes. Good News. So tell me about that. Why do we need a book about good news? Oh, do you know this book? So the way I tell you about how it came about when, you know, we sort of knew that we were in a global pandemic. This is sort of March last year. I can't believe how quickly this thing was written. My editor and I had a chat about, you know, what book would help children at this time? You know, what is going on in the world? And we knew that fake news was an issue. It always has been. And I feel like it's really blown up in the last few years. You know, we're just seeing so much of it and it's so persuasive and this sort of little nuggets of information, misinformation can go viral so quickly. And we wanted to do something to tackle that. But at the same time, there's also this kind of media bias towards negativity. And we wanted to explore why that is, why those sorts of news stories stick in our minds as well, and why they create so much worry and anxiety. And then write a book that would just completely challenge all of that. So Good News was about helping children be fake news detectives, identify fake news and form their own opinions about what they're reading. That's a big piece of this is, you know, it's critical thinking. It's developing that that muscle whenever they read something, thinking about who has written this? Why have they written this? What are they trying to make me feel? And is this a credible source? That's one piece of it. And then the other piece of it is shining a spotlight on good news because there is so much bad news out there. And yes, things are tricky. And this book doesn't shy away from that. It's actually not just shining a spotlight on good things. It talks about some of the biggest challenges of our time. We look at climate change. We look at global politics. We look at global inequality, health. We look at the challenges facing arts and cultures. Those are big themes. But what I do in this, and Adam's illustrations, again, make it all kind of fun and light and accessible. It's all about highlighting those issues, showing what the state of the world is, but then showcasing all of the brilliant people and organizations that are doing so much good in the world. So it's a, it's a sort of reassuring, anxiety eliminating book for a young reader to see that, you know, actually, okay, things are bad, but there is hope. There is so much hope. And, you know, there's sometimes this messaging, I feel, with young people that you have to change the world. Your generation has to fix this. And I, I didn't want that. I really wanted a book that says, you know what, actually, relax, because there are a lot of people on the case here and they're doing great things. And maybe when you grow up, you'll want to join them. And, you know, here are some at the end of each chapter, we've got some small scale things that they can do to contribute, to help, to make a difference in their world. But there's no pressure on them. It's very much, look, there are good things happening. There is so much to be hopeful about. Here are the facts and you decide for yourself. So that, that's the essence of the book. I think that's a really good point, actually. There was definitely a trend in publishing, which is still going on a little bit for books about, you know, here is 
an eco-warrior or an activist and look she or he is only 17 and mm -hmm. it does sort of create this idea that all teenagers or all young children should aspire to be like them so I think this book sounds really exciting can you give me an example of some of the subjects that you talk about in the book give us a little sneak peek a little sneak peek so we talk about clean energy mm -hmm. because I think you know climate change is something that there is a lot of panic around and understandably and I completely understand the voices that are saying you need to panic because we need to feel a certain level of urgency to do something. But this book then looks at the amazing developments in clean energy, whether we're talking about cars or sort of the changing the way we power our homes. And I don't think we talk enough about those in the news. We talk about the devastation. We talk about we're headed for this. We don't talk about the amazing global cooperation that is taking place to try and change some of these things. And I think, you know, it's examples like that, that I hope a young reader is going to look at and say, wow, you know, that that's reassuring. Yeah. No, that sounds fantastic. Now, let me take you back to the beginning of your career. How did you become a writer of nonfiction for children? By chance, really, in a way, because, well, my career started at Penguin Random House with their Right Now mentoring programme for underrepresented voices. Tell us a bit about that programme and how it works. So that programme, I, I came across it by chance while I was on Twitter. I just rediscovered children's books because actually, even though I loved writing as a child, I didn't really see people like me in books. I didn't see people like me on the spines of books. And I didn't, so sorry, I just didn't think this was a, an industry that was welcoming to me. And I sort of wrote that off. But here was a program right now saying, actually, we're looking for voices like yours. We're looking for people who you don't see in books, for people you don't see as authors. And I thought on a whim, well, I'll just apply, you know. And as I said, at the time, I'd rediscovered children's books and they were just so much more exciting than the ones I grew up with. And by that, I just mean they were more diverse. They were really varied. The nonfiction has just never been so exciting and so beautiful, like the, just the artwork. And so it all came at that time. I applied, I got onto the program, never thought I would. And um, my editor, um, Anna Barnes Robinson, was actually into fiction and nonfiction. So while we were working on my fiction, I did some picture books with them. They had an idea cooking in-house for how to be extraordinary. They had a title and a concept. It was going to be similar to the fantastic Kate Pankhurst books on Fantastically Great Women. But we talk about men and women. They'd be very contemporary. And they were wondering who would write it. They found Annabelle Tempest as an illustrator, which is brilliant. And then the head of children's just said, well, you know, why don't you ask your mentee, Rashmi, to have a go? <laughs> and doing a spread. And I thought, well, okay, I'll have a go. And I did. And that spread is pretty much untouched in the final book, actually. That was my first nonfiction, which came out a year and a half ago. And after that, as I finished that book, they really liked it. We started on how to change the world. Josh was just, a, as I was already in the flow of nonfiction, as my agent was headed off to London Book Fair, I had an idea about writing this book about money, sent her a two-line email. And that is literally how that book started. Fantastic. I think that sounds really interesting because people have this idea that writing nonfiction means the publisher comes up with a concept and you as the writer, you just have to do what you're told. But actually your career has been a real mix of your ideas and your publisher's ideas, hasn't it? It has. And in fact, even with how to be extraordinary and how to change the world, the publisher had a concept. Um, Puffin had this idea, even for how to change the world. Okay, let's do a book that celebrates teamwork. But I went away and researched sort of all the, the stories that I'd like to include, ex amazing examples of teamwork to put in that book. So, you know, when people ask me, does it feel like your book? Yes, it feels like my book and Annabelle's book because we shaped it. Can you tell me about your research process? There's a lot of 
banging heads on desks. <laughs> um, there's a lot of reading, a lot of reading. So I will take quite a bit of time, a few weeks at the start of a project to just read around it. I'll read adult nonfiction on a topic. I'll watch documentaries. I'll get into academic journals, which are really tricky, actually, because the language is not something I, I've I encountered for a very, very long time. So you have to really dig deep to find the one piece of information you need. But I'll do that to get an idea of the big themes. And then what I'll do is I'll build out quite a detailed outline for my nonfiction. That gives me an idea of what I need to research in detail. But my actual process will end up being a kind of research, write, research, write cycle. Because as I start writing, I might find I need to go back and look more deeply into a topic and then come back to the writing. So it sort of builds on itself. But I'll have a research schedule that's quite tight because I find nonfiction publishing schedules are just really quite challenging. <laughs> How come? I don't know. I really don't know. I think maybe there's an urgency around some topics or maybe especially the things I've been doing. Money, we really wanted to get that out because it sounded like a useful thing. Good news, really, really wanted to get that out within the year because it's useful. I think it's it's a book that's going to I know it's my book. I'm not saying this. Um, it sounds really bad, but I just think it's going to make such a difference. I, I, I know it will. And not because of me. I, my first five drafts of that book were a disaster because it's so difficult to write a thing like that. But my editor, Laura Horsley, is incredible. And she really pushed me to, to make this what it is. And I just know that it works. And so, you know, there's a lot of editing that that goes into books like these, a lot of research, rewriting, because you have to make it accessible. It has to be interesting and relatable. You can't, you know, you don't have the word count to waffle around a topic. So it's quite, it's quite difficult being precise in children's nonfiction. And surely it's quite difficult to make a big topic easy to understand for a child who might be seven or eight. I mean, do you have any tips on <laughs> for people who, who want to do that? I mean, to me, that just seems so difficult. It is. And I still find it. I'm still learning. I mean, I'm only, I, I consider myself a newbie writer. I've only been doing this for a few years. But the thing I've found really helps me lately is thinking about the things that a child is going to run to someone because they can't wait to tell them. And those are the things that I hold on to. So if I've researched, you know, a chunk about a topic, I pull out the juiciest bits, the bits that are going to make them run downstairs or run into the other room and say, guess what? You know, those are the things that I need to hold on to. And I know that they're the landmarks in my book that I need, the milestones that I need to hit on every single page, every single paragraph. I needed something in there that's going to pull the reader in that way. And I think if you think in those terms and always making it relatable, step into their shoes, what bothers them at the moment? What worries them? What excites them? Not in a way that looks down to the reader, because we don't do that. We have to give them credit for being amazing and so, so savvy, actually. So, so savvy. But it has to be accessible and age appropriate. So sensitively handled. Yeah, sensitively handled. I think that's really key. Mm. Thank you. Now, this podcast is all about getting books into the hands of readers. So can you talk me through some of the things that you and your publishers have done to promote your books? Yes. So school visits have been a really big part of promotion work. And I know, you know, lately they've been virtual, but actually I've managed to engage with so many schools through through virtual visits, people I wouldn't have been able to visit otherwise. Because teachers and librarians, I keep saying this, are incredible ambassadors for books. They are incredible champions. They tell children about what they've read. They match readers to books that would be perfect for them. So they've been a big piece in this. And I find Twitter 
for all its faults, is incredible for networking because I've met so many teachers and librarians through that and they have then shared their book, my books with their, their classes. But we've also done other things. So with Good News, we're going to be running a sort of Good Good News Month campaign in June to encourage people to share their good news stories. We'll have things they can put up on their walls and their school um, or a bookshop to sort of say, you know, pin up your good news stories, however small, just to get that vibe going. Mm -hmm. I'm working with some influencers in the positive news space. We'll have school resources, because again, really getting schools to grapple with fake news and confirmation bias, which is so important. So we'll be doing things like that. The usual sort of media outreach, but media is always tricky, isn't it? Because there's very limited media space, the children's books, yes. you know, the yes. story, nonfiction then is a tiny slice of that. Mm -hmm. And that's luck driven. Um, I've been very lucky to have some media coverage for DOSH and for How to Change the World, but I know that's not something every author can rely on. But, you know, publicists do their best. Yes, they do, don't they? Hopefully, as well as COVID restrictions get lifted, you might be able to do some in-person events too, I imagine. Is that something that you enjoy doing? Yes, I do. I, I love it. I started last year before the lockdown and yeah, just really enjoyed them. I think the questions that children come up with, the way they engage with your book, and they're just so excited to have an author or an illustrator in. You can just see that yeah. in their faces and it's, it's so fulfilling. So I think when you write, especially when you write nonfiction, you can get really bogged down in the facts and you know, something can be so challenging. I've had times when I'm completely stuck and I wonder if I'm, you know, meant to be a writer and all those, you know, imposter syndrome thoughts kick in. But when you get that reaction from a reader, it, um, it all makes sense. Yeah. What's the best thing that, or some, an example of something really funny or interesting a child has said to you during an event? Um, funny. Oh, I don't have any funny stories. I think that the most, the most wonderful thing a child has ever said to me was they put their hand up and I thought they were going to ask a question because it was question time. And they said, I just want to say, I think your books are epic. And they said it like that. Epic. And I've never forgotten that. And that's now my favorite adjective. When children ask me, what's your favorite adjective? Um, <laughs> I love that. Someone asked this the other day, what's your favorite adjective? Mine is mouthwatering. And I thought, um, <laughs> Wow, that's a really cool choice. Mine is epic and this is why. But the funniest thing a child has ever said about my book was a fellow writer's uh, daughter. I think she was about nine and she, she loved Dosh. She loved it. And she said, you know, I'm going to keep this book because um, it's going to be useful when I have my business. And her dad said, well, what, what's your business? She said, I don't have one yet. But when I do, this book is going to be my Bible. It was brilliant. It was just brilliant. That's adorable. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what you want, isn't it? For your book to be so loved and valued that the child or the teacher or the librarian or whoever thinks this is one to keep. Yes. This is not one to throw away. For this episode of Chapter and Verse, The Art of Selling Children's Books, I also wanted to talk to a publishing professional who is an expert in promoting children's nonfiction. Next person you will hear is Christopher from the Quarto Group. Hi Christopher, could you introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Yeah, so I'm uh, Christopher Ransom and I'm Head of Children's Campaigns at Quarto Kids. So working across a wealth of brilliant nonfiction really, and um, you know, wide-eyed editions, Francis Lincoln Children's Books, which is the imprint of Little People's Big Dreams, but then also QD Publishing, and two brand new imprints actually, Ivy Kids, which is our new eco imprint, and Happy Yap, 
which is our new imprint for under sevens. Okay, so you've got new imprints. Obviously, the market is growing. Could you give us a bit more information about that? How is it growing? Why do you think it's growing? What kind of nonfiction books are popular at the moment? Obviously, there's been a real growth in sort of picture book biography, which you've sort of seen in the success of Little People's Big Dream. But then um, I've also seen when we talk about sort of our ID Kids imprint, there's a, there's a real demand for sort of sustainably produced books that sort of key into, you know, the, the eco topics that are a real focus among children um you know there's a there's a great deal of like eco anxiety among children at the moment so um we've decided to come up with a new eco imprint which sort of is sustainably produced and is trying to cater to those demands among kids and their parents what kind of books are you publishing as part of that imprint we just published a, a picture book with isabella tree who's the author of the adult book wilden which is sort of a semi-autobiographical tale about letting nature run wild on a on a british farm um, and then we're actually in June publishing a new book with Ranger Hamza from CBB's program, Let's Go For A Walk. So this weekend, we're actually just filming a, filming a nice video with him where we get on a little guided nature walk where he was spotting things out in nature that related to the book and giving kids lots of tips about how they can engage with nature and that sort of thing, which was really, really fun. Now, when, you, when you're sort of set at your desk and you're coming up with a campaign to promote a nonfiction book or series, what are you looking for? from the book or perhaps the author itself that himself or herself that you can use to promote it i guess the way we sort of start all of our campaigns is what campaign plan i should say is i sort of take the book and i think what are the usps of this book and it could be anything from you know taking a new direction on a well-known topic or it could be the author or it could be the illustrations or it could be you know, the format, we've got great sort of novelty format nonfiction recently and then i think so what are the three usps who do I think is really going to love this book? What is the audience? How can I reach them? So whether, you know, that's going through, you know, certain publications or, you know, taking a, a certain route with my campaigns, whether it's a focus on publicity or a focus on marketing or digital marketing or social media, how do I reach that audience? And then really, how do I get them excited about this book and sort of cut through the noise and engage with them on a sort of a personal level? So that's sort of the uh, approach we take to sort of all of our topics, all of our books, I should say. Yeah, that's essentially what we do to sort of devise our campaigns and we move forward from there. So for instance, say it was a, a, a real, um, an author with a personal connection to the topic, we might use that to inform our PR strategy um, when we're making outreach to reviewers and that sort of thing. Or, you know, it could be a really big, beautiful nonfiction title with a focus on the illustrations, whereas then we take a much more visual approach through our sort of digital marketing and our social media, could make some great PRS for, you know, the trade stores. So yeah, that's sort of the strategy we use to sort of build campaigns and then we can bounce around from there and sort of flesh out really immersive, integrated campaigns. So what did you do for Little People Big Dreams? Because that was a really big success. So with Little People Dreams, we sort of, we're working on that series continuously. So we sort of take a thematic campaigns approach, but then also sort of a singular title approach. If I just take some recent examples, um, we recently did a really big series push uh, linking our sort of STEM for people with dreams figures in the British Science Week. So we pulled together sort of a panel of um, female UK scientists and we teamed them up with the series author Isabel Sanchez Vergara and we sort of put them together to chat about why STEM topics are so important, you know, the British, you know, British kids growing up. And we connected them with sort of um, PR outlets and, and radio shows and they just had a nice chat about the, you know, the series and how it can help kids get into STEM topics. And we sort of obviously we twinned that with British Science Week and there's a focus and a demand for sort of STEM topics. And we partnered up with the National Space Centre or the British Science Association. So that's an example of one of the big campaigns we do, which is sort of takes a thematic approach to the, the series in general. 
But then we also, you know, take a more granular approach to the, the titles on like a specific level. For instance, you know, we just published Little People's Dreams of RuPaul. So we, um, we worked with um, Drag Queen Storytime, who are a really great organization. He, go, he connects with kids in drag and, you know, make LGBTQ plus issues more accessible to kids and talk about great LGBT plus books. So that's something we did on a more granular level. But then, you know, also we've just published Hans Christian Andersen, where we worked, did a lot of work with the Danish embassy, where we, you know, we knew that there's a lot of um, interest in Hans Christian Andersen among the, amongst the Danish community because he's one of their most famous Danes. And, you know, we did a great competition with them and we went into their newsletter. So like I said, yeah, it's sort of identifying the core audience for each of these books and sort of trying to come up with creative ways to reach them, really sort of the focus of what we do which is a lot of fun <laughs> can we talk about uh, marketing and when you're looking at a marketing budget and what you want to spend your money on when it comes to non-fiction what what are the important things that you feel like you need to spend money on to market a book it can it can vary really i mean when children's non-fiction is so varied anyway so i'll take a i'll take a book for instance and say i think it will really appeal to the school's market I would then know that, listen, I really need to connect with educators and librarians and teachers. So how can I do that with the budget that I've got? You know, I might want to invest some budget in some of you know, the great organizations out there uh, that connect with these, with teachers and educators, be that, you know, like CINEP or CLPE or the Reading Agency or Reading Zone or Authorfy. Shall I put my budget here to connect with that core audience of educators and um, teachers and librarians? And then again, say it's a, you know, a real giftable nonfiction book. I might think, yeah, well, a lot of my budget here has got to go into social media advertising and, um, you know, POS for stores and, and window displays and um, that's, that sort of thing. So it varies based on where I think that book will succeed and then how we utilize that budget. So it varies book to book. You know, you're constantly on your toes thinking of ways to optimize your budget and get the book where it needs to be, essentially. Yeah. And how important is social media at the moment? Social media is, is important across the board, really. But obviously for more, some books more than others. And you can use social media in different ways. You can use it just as a means to connect organically. Um, there's a huge librarian and teacher audience on Twitter, for instance, who are great at spotlighting titles and they've got a real core audience and they follow one another. So you can chat and engage with them and suggest, you know, educational books, which is a great way tool to use social media. Um, and then obviously there's social media advertising, which I just mentioned in the, the more giftable book. But at the same time, you know, if you've got a, a really great educational book, nonfiction book, it can sometimes do the, the work itself without the need for social media. I mean, social media is more tailored to some books than others, in my opinion. And, you know, you can connect with an audience in ways that doesn't involve social media, you know, whether it's through those great organizations that I said we work with quite a lot, you know, through uh, review outlets, um, and magazines and that sort of thing. So, you know, with nonfiction, kids nonfiction, there are ways to, you know, target your audience without necessarily going down the social media route. OK, oh, that's really interesting. So you're not you, you don't have to be an expert in TikTok or Twitter or Facebook or whatever it is. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, I, you like to think you're an expert across the board on all these things, but um, I no, what I mean to say is solely is that I don't think it's the sole avenue towards, um, you know, like educational accounts, for instance. Sure, sure. Um, and also, you guys have got so many amazing illustrators that you work with, and I'm sure there are times when you use an illustrator's skill or their personality to market and promote a book. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, we've got a, like a wealth of amazing illustrators um, across across our list who are all incredibly talented and we work with them in like a, a myriad of different ways. 
a lot of illustrators are great, even the non-fiction illustrators are great for schools events and sort of draw-alongs and that sort of thing. So we often uh, do tutorials with our illustrators um, and we like get them in front of a school audience. And they do a draw-along and they introduce the topic. And especially in non-fiction, it's an amazing way to sort of bring non-fiction alive, obviously, which is why we see these incredible pairings of facts and illustrations that we see in kids' non-fiction. So we, yeah, we can get them in front of school audience, do like sort of live illustration draw-alongs. They can also help us with the POS design and that sort of thing. Like lots of illustrators are amazing and willing to help in lots of creative ways. Illustrators are also just super creative in general. So they often have brilliant ideas about other things around the books campaigns, you know, like even as far as say, PR strategy. And also I think for a kid, there's something so tangible about someone creating art and it's like so intrinsic to what they do so really getting them in front of kids and you know whether that's through video content which we can then send out to schools and organizations which is probably the, the, the core way we work with them to be honest aside from you know commissioning for the amazing illustrations they produce in the first place and obviously so yeah there you mentioned reaching out to kids but presumably a lot of the time you're thinking about reaching out to who's buying that book as well are they primarily parents in your mind I mean, it sort of differs. Primarily, I would say parents, yeah, and caregivers. But, you know, we're like, especially with nonfiction, we're also tailoring towards teachers and librarians and educators. So with nonfiction, yeah, it's probably an even split. It, it sort of depends on the age range as well, of course. A lot we do is informed to target those audiences. But yeah, obviously, towards the lower range range, we do stuff to appeal to kids directly, you know, through that's through activity sheets and teaching resources and that sort of thing. Now, one final question, and one that I think is particularly relevant to you guys and other publishers who produce sort of expensive beautiful books talk me through the differences between promoting a book that may be sort of 6.99 and one of those big gorgeous heavily illustrated hardbacks that you know companies like yours produce so there are differences between the two obviously you know stuff like price point and format makes a massive difference against like what markets for instance you can go into sort of like a 6.99 paperback non-fiction title will obviously appeal much more to a school's market who um, you know, have a budget to keep in mind and they want a quality book at a price they can afford so that they can obviously get them into the hands of as many kids as they can. So obviously that's a huge difference. So with those sorts of books, we obviously go down as well as you know, appealing to parents, we obviously go down that specific route. A lot of the books we produce in those formats and those at those price points, nonfiction especially, are you know, intended for that educational market. So we'll go through those organizations and charities and awards that we spoke about. And then you know, those big, expensive price point gift books, you know, they do snare a lot of librarians and teachers anyway, just because they're, they're, they're so beautiful. A lot of that we gear around you know, key activations like Christmas and key gifting periods. You know, and we have a like a big social media strategy involved around them, you know, around key gifting time, you know, everyone's looking for gifts to buy. And then it's also working with digital partners that have stuff in lieu with that book. For instance, we could publish, you know, a gorgeous natural history nonfiction title. Um, and we know we want to be working with sort of like Nat Geo kids and that sort of thing and getting their, getting their book in front of those kids. So yeah, they obviously, there's obviously a very different strategy between the two. It's like format and price point are important, you know, as well as audience and topic. You know, there's so much to consider with nonfiction, especially because it's such like a broad range of topics. Christopher, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Now, Rashmi, do you have any advice for getting people excited about nonfiction? I think we need to, as a community, as a book community, talk more about nonfiction. I think we need to stop talking about it just as a sort of gateway drug into reading. While I think it's amazing and such an honour for a child to have come to reading through a nonfiction book, it doesn't end there. It's not like you read nonfiction and then discover a world of fiction. 
actually, you could read nonfiction and discover a world of fiction and more factual books because they're brilliant. So I think we have to change how we talk about it. And I also think we have to see that actually nonfiction, factual books can be really incredible in that they solve a specific problem that a child has. There are people, there are families, there are children, teachers, librarians who are looking specifically for certain topics. And sometimes those might be about navigating life, navigating the world. They might be about growing up or they might be about an interest area. But how incredible to think you actually have a book that solves a specific problem. So then the problem becomes, the challenge becomes matching, doesn't it? It's not throwing a book out into the ether and saying, somebody like it. There are people out there who want that book and you just have to find them. So I think we have to think about reaching new audiences, not just the small social media bubbles that we're in, but stepping out to see where are the people who need this thing. I think we need a very commercial approach to that to, you know, stepping outside the book community Mm -hmm. and finding our readers. I don't know if that helps. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think it's true. And I think one thing that I really admire about you is that you are very active on social media. So you talk about other authors' books, you are very complimentary about other authors, but it seems to me like this is this is part of your job. You're, You're not just doing it for fun. You see it as part of your job to promote and help the industry as a whole. I mean, so that is that's a deliberate thing, I'm guessing. Yes, it is. And also, I, I want to boost great people. I think I'm very lucky to know some, some wonderful authors and illustrators, and I would celebrate their books, even if I'd like to think I'd celebrate their books, even if I hadn't been an author. But yes, I think we have to support each other. There is sometimes a little competitive feeling in this industry, but my view is that the pie is huge. It's, it's big enough, and this world is big enough for all of us. It's big enough for more nonfiction writers. And I want to see more, more creatives grow in this industry, more underrepresented voices come come up and I want to see them thrive. I want to see them normalized in this industry because it helps me too. Yeah. Even if I look at it completely selfishly, it will help all of us. Brilliant. Oh, Rashmi, thank you so much for joining us today. I always love talking to you about nonfiction because you're so knowledgeable, but also so passionate about it as a subject. It's, it's just lovely to hear. We just have a few questions that we ask all our guests. And the first one I would like to ask is, who in the children's book world do you admire and why? Ah, so many people. You're going to make me pick one on the spot. I'm going to say Dapo Adeola has done so much for this industry, promoting voices that I hadn't heard of. And I'm so grateful to him for that. But he's also just an all-round good egg. I should say not an illustrator, an author illustrator now. Yes, and just a good friend. And I think I did my first ever Penguin Showcase with him. Um, we were on a panel and I was terrified. And he was just that wonderful, calming presence. And that's what you need. You need people in this community who kind of walk alongside you and support you. Definitely. <laughs> my next question is, what is the best thing about making and selling children's books in the UK? I think it's a really interesting time for the UK. I can see children's books have always been a really interesting industry here. Thriving. I don't think we get enough credit given how much of the market children's books take up. That's for sure. I was shocked when I first saw that. And factual books, especially, I think are a space to watch. And I think it's interesting being in a being in an industry where you're in that position, where it's growing, where we're not where the US is yet. But maybe we're headed in that direction. And maybe we're headed in that direction for things like graphic novels and comics. You know, there are lots of things to watch here. So I'm, I'm very happy to be making books here. And then we sell the rights around the world. So, you know. Yes, exactly. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> it's all good. And what are you most looking forward to in 2021? Oh, 
I'm looking forward to people being hopeful again. I think with the vaccine rollout, I'm seeing it already. And I just think, you know, the sun's coming and summer's coming and it's just, um, I can feel something in the air. I feel like we're turning a corner. Oh, that's lovely. Now, before we go, tell us when is good news out? The release date is, I've got to remember this, the 20th, 27th of June, I think. Thereabouts, if I get it wrong. Sorry, Hachette. <laughs> so June, when everyone is feeling optimistic about the vaccine rollout, we'll all be out a little bit more. There will be this lovely book all about good news. So it's perfect timing. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's been so lovely having you here. And thank you to all our listeners, everyone who has tuned in. This is Chapter and Verse, The Art of Selling Children's Books, created by Rocket and the Bookseller. And my name is Charlotte Eyre. Don't forget to follow us on social media and we look forward to seeing you next time.